Nuclear Icon We all come into our awareness of nuclear dangers from somewhere or someone. And for me, as for so many of you listening, that awareness came from Dr. Helen Caldicott. A medical doctor, for more than 60 years, she has led the world in awareness, organizing, and fighting back at the highest levels, teaching us how to fight back against the nuclear menace. Using medical information on the consequences to human life and health, she vividly explains what nuclear weapons, reactors, and the entire fuel chain, from uranium mining's impact on mostly indigenous people around the world to what physically happens to the human body in the wake of the bomb, she has led thought and action that at times came heartbreakingly close to banning nuclear bombs. So there's no time or energy dedicated to couching the language into something quote-unquote acceptable. When she tells you... Almost all politicians are scientifically and medically illiterate, and these people who own the bomb, and we're right on the verge of nuclear annihilation today, and I'll get on to the quotes defence industry soon, but it's not defence, it's murder. It's the Department of Murder, not Defence. Murder. All these weapons they're creating, they're for murder. Murder. Well, when Dr. Helen Caldicott, a Nobel Peace Prize nominee, states it so clearly and directly, there's no way to avoid the fact that the human race has gotten itself strapped into that terrible, deadly, radioactive seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear meltdown at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, the first of a two-part interview with Dr. Helen Caldicott. A medical doctor, she has led awareness and actions against nuclear for more than six decades. And here, she reflects on her life, how she came to be active on nuclear issues, and how her one-on-one -on -one talk with then-President Ronald Reagan almost changed the course of nuclear history. We will also have Linda Pence Gunter of Beyond Nuclear, who will weigh in on the Netflix four-part series, Meltdown, Three Mile Island, for this week's Nuclear Hot Seat, Hot Story. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than we can ever expect to get from Elon Musk. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, May 11, 2022, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. In the U.S., Plant Vogel, near Augusta, Georgia, 
is the only nuclear plant under construction in the United States. And its cost could deter other utilities from building such plants because total spending is now pegged at more than $34 billion, that's with a B, dollars. When improved in 2012, the third and fourth reactors at Vogel were estimated to cost $14 billion, with the first electricity being generated in 2016. Now the third reactor is set to begin operations in March of 2023 and the fourth in December of 2023. Being set, being a wobbly term in a nuclear industry that is well known for taking longer than it says and costing more than it approximates. And in South Carolina, a judge has approved a second round of refunds for customers of a utility that poured billions of dollars into two nuclear power plants that never produced a single watt of energy. That's the VC Summer Plant near Columbia, South Carolina, where Dominion Energy has put aside about $61 million to be able to settle a class action lawsuit by 1.1 million of its customers. Additionally, Four senior managers in the Scana Nuclear Corporation and Westinghouse Electric Corporation are criminally indicted in the Federal Witness Protection Program or incarcerated for a conspiracy to commit wire fraud in connection with V.C. Summer. In Massachusetts, Holtec, the company that is tasked with decommissioning the closed Pilgrim nuclear power plant, wants to dump one million gallons of radioactive water into Cape Cod Bay. But Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey is having none of it. At a four-hour public field hearing held in Plymouth on May 6th, Senator Markey questioned Holtec's competency and the leniency of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the federal regulator ostensibly tasked with protecting public health and safety. Of Holtec, Markey said, they don't know what they're doing. And of a proposed NRC rulemaking in the works that would update meaning weaken federal decommissioning regulations for the nuclear industry, Markey said, the NRC's proposed decommissioning rule shows it to be a captive agency, one that shows no interest in engaging the public, which would provide even a semblance of accountability. In Arizona, the Palo Verde Generating Station, which is the largest nuclear power plant in the United States, is still looking for an alternative water source after the reclaimed water piped more than 35 miles to its site across the desert is proving to be too expensive. Palo Verde is the only nuclear plant in the world not adjacent to a large body of water to cool the plant. One way out of this boondoggle? Shut it down, keep it shut down, and then figure out what to do with the waste. And a bill that would renew federal relief for Americans impacted by nuclear activities throughout the country was passed by the U.S. Senate and now awaits approval from the House of Representatives amid calls that it be extended to also provide compensation to New Mexicans exposed to radiation. The legislation would be a renewal of the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act, or RECA, It would extend it by two years to provide cash payments to those exposed while working in or living near nuclear operations. And we'll link to an article from the New York Times on why the debate over Russian uranium worries U.S. tribal nations. Short answer, if we start mining uranium again in this country, it will all be on indigenous lands and they're the ones who will be harmed most by it. In Japan, 
Tokyo Electric Power Company, or TEPCO, saw its profit for the fiscal year that ended in March of 2022 plummeting by 96.9% over the previous year. This compounds the difficulties facing the company in compensating victims of the Fukushima nuclear actor and covering the cleanup and decommissioning costs. It is estimated that the cost of compensating people, decontaminating, and decommissioning would come to 21.5 trillion yen, or 165 billion U.S. dollars. In addition to a story we started last week, the Pacific Islands Forum, which is made up of 18 independent Pacific Island countries, has created an expert panel to provide independent technical advice as part of the ongoing dialogue with Japan officials and representatives of the nuclear power plant in Fukushima about where the more than 1 million tons of tritium-contaminated radioactive water from Fukushima is going to be put. They stated, at this point, we are unanimous in saying we don't see enough information to support dumping the radioactively contaminated water into the ocean, and continued, our first recommendation to the group is to take that option off the table for now. But good luck getting anyone to listen to that, because... Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, none that's out of week. If you're wanting to kick back and watch the nuclear industry's machinations unfold in all its many ugly splendors, what better way than to get together with a friend who shares your views and then share some popcorn? That's what British Prime Minister Boris Johnson and Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida did during their meeting in Britain on May 5th, as they yucked it up over their nuclear plans. See, Kishida is all in favor of dumping more than a million tons of tritium-contaminated radioactive water from the Fukushima triple meltdown site directly into the Pacific Ocean. Doesn't matter to him how strongly the world protests, he's just got his heart set on doing it. And Johnson announced that he was pleased that Britain would soon lift its import restrictions on food produced in Fukushima and other areas of Japan that were imposed after the Fukushima triple meltdown. This, in addition to Johnson's plans to build eight, count them, eight new nuclear reactors. And Kishida is pushing to restart all the Japanese nuclear reactors shut down after Fukushima. Hey, what do you want? It's just a couple of frat boys partying and bonding over a Fukushima-based snack that, incidentally, has to be exploded before being eaten. And all of this is why, Boris Johnson and Fumio Kishida, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. And in this numbnuts adjacent story, the Federation of Electric Power Companies of Japan has just learned that in the event of a nuclear power plant accident, only three doctors are available to be dispatched to the power plant nationwide to provide initial treatment and health care to workers. The Ministry of Health, Labor and Welfare has pointed out that, quote, It is difficult to maintain a permanent system with only three doctors. Yeah, think? As for the impact of the Fukushima triple meltdown on people, there are two important pieces of media that have just come out. The first is a book by reporter Kim Jin Chiol entitled People on the Front Lines 
a record of nine years of disaster relief by workers at the Fukushima nuclear plant. The material is taken from 179 notebooks that reporter Natsuko Katayama kept over nine years at Fukushima. She is a reporter on the city desk at the Tokyo Shimbun newspaper and went undercover at Fukushima after the Tohoku earthquake in March of 2011. We'll link to that book on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 568. And Hiroshima resident Hidenobu Fukumoto has created a 57-minute anime exploring why Fukushima Prefecture ended up hosting a nuclear power plant. It tells the story through the eyes of residents who evacuated from their hometowns following the nuclear power plant triple meltdown in 2011. The story illustrates the major events leading up to the construction of the nuclear plant in Fukushima Prefecture and includes a scene where a girl asks her mother, who is lying on a bed at the Hiroshima Atomic Bomb Survivors Hospital, to take her to an exhibition on the peaceful use of atomic energy when she recovers. Fukumoto began creating the work after hearing from a Fukushima resident that there was a plan to build a nuclear plant in Hiroshima. We'll provide a link to where you can find a package of an anime DVD along with a 16-page picture book. Over to France, where French pharmacists have reported an increased demand for iodine tablets from people worried about the possibility of nuclear war with Russia or an attack on one of Ukraine's nuclear power plants. The demand in France is not on the same level as in countries closer to Ukraine. Pharmacies in Bulgaria and the Czech Republic ran out of iodine pills in March, but it has been enough for French pharmacies to start propaganda uh, information campaigns to reassure people that the government has enough stock to quickly deliver tablets to the entire population in the case of the disaster. Actually, after the fact would be a bit too late. It's also reported that the handful of private bunker contractors in France have also said they have received a record number of orders since the start of the war in Ukraine. Unlike some other European countries, France has virtually no bomb shelters for the general population, compared with Germany or Switzerland, which have space for their entire populations. The EU is encouraging European member states to stockpile iodine pills, protective suits, and other medicine to be used in the case of a nuclear accident. A note on the iodine pills, potassium iodide, they are only good against radioactive iodine that is released in the wake of an immediate explosion or nuclear reactor accident. But there are other radioactive isotopes that are released at the same time, and potassium iodide is not a protector for any of the other radioisotopes. Finally, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists published a piece, We Need to Get Serious About the Renewable Energy Revolution by Including Nuclear Power. Hey, Bulletin, whose side are you on anyway? We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment, but first, there is never a week without nuclear news. Most of it directed by the multi-million dollar public relations campaigns of the nuclear industry. Even the media is conditioned to look to information provided by vested interest for its stories, often not even changing wording from the nukesters' press releases. Those who oppose nuclear barely merit a mention, and usually that's a diminished voice in a buried paragraph after the pro-nuclear talking points have taken up the bulk of the article. Yet, 
We know the stories. We are the stories. And we struggle to make our voices heard. That is why you need Nuclear Hot Seat. We don't look away. We don't flinch. We continue on the nuclear story every week, looking for the latest information and angles that reveal progressively more details on the nuclear dangers and what's being attempted to be done about them. Nuclear Hot Seat is the world's longest-running program exclusively on nuclear matters. And while the show is provided without cost to broadcast stations, online distribution channels, downloading and linking to all forms of social media, that doesn't mean it is without cost. There are monthly charges for all the services it takes to keep it running, and especially now when we have the new improved website where we are still uploading our archive of more than 560 episodes. We need your support to keep this going. So help us out by going to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the red Donate button. You can send us a one-time donation or set up a recurring donation for as little as $5 a month, the same as a cup of coffee. So buy us a metaphoric cup of coffee, and we'll put it towards keeping the show running on a weekly basis. Know that whatever you can do to help, I'm deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now here's this week's featured interview, and what a special one it is. When I returned to Los Angeles from having been one mile from the nuclear meltdown at Three Mile Island while it happened, I had no understanding of what that might have done to my physical body. The first I learned was when my editor at LA Weekly, who was publishing my account of my experience at Three Mile Island, handed me a copy of the previous week's paper, which included an interview with a Dr. Helen Caldicott. In it, she explained the possible physical impacts of exposure to radiation, from cancers to autoimmune diseases to genetic damage, along with a timeline of how long it would take for any of these to show up. Her words, the first and the clearest that I encountered, led me to make major changes in my life, from switching to holistic medicine for my health and going as organic as possible, to deciding not to have children. Few people have had this magnitude of impact on my life, and ultimately, she's at the root of the reasons why I do Nuclear Hot Seat every week, which is why I was both excited and honored when Dr. Caldicott agreed to be interviewed at length for this show. For those of you not familiar, she is an Australian physician, author, and anti-nuclear advocate. She revived the organization Physicians for Social Responsibility, helped to found International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, and many other anti-nuclear organizations. She has dedicated her life to opposing the use of nuclear power, depleted uranium munitions, nuclear weapons, nuclear weapons proliferation, and military action in general, as well as her ongoing opposition to every step of the nuclear fuel chain. She was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize by Nobel winner Linus Pauling and probably can be found as the root source for much of the anti-nuclear work that is being done today. I talked with Dr. Caldicott for well over an hour, which is why our interview is going to be presented in two parts. We spoke on Monday, April 25th, 2022. Dr. Helen Caldicott, it is always a pleasure and an honor to have you as a guest on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you very much. Let's start out with you. What is your background and how did you first become interested in and involved with nuclear issues? Well, I'm a doctor, a physician. 
I've always wanted to be a doctor since I was 11. My specialty is cystic fibrosis. I learned how to treat that disease when I was on the Harvard faculty, uh, working with the pioneer, Dr. Harry Schwachman. And I set up the first cystic fibrosis clinic in Australia in Adelaide, which now has the best longevity results in the country. How did I get involved in nuclear? Well, I had a wonderful biology teacher, Peter Martin, first year of medicine, who taught me about the experiments on Drosophila fruit flies, where if they're irradiated, they develop in future generations genetic abnormalities like crooked wings and abnormal body structures, etc. And so I learned very early when I was only 17 about radiation and genetics. And I also read when I was 17 a book called On the Beach by Neville Shute, and it was set in Melbourne, Australia. Ava Gardner came out to film it with Gregory Peck, I think. And it was about a nuclear war that occurred by accident in the Northern Hemisphere, which could happen today. And gradually the radioactive fallout came down to the Southern Hemisphere, and the book was set in Melbourne, and the government gave cyanide capsules to parents so they could kill their babies so they wouldn't die of long, awful medical effects of acute radiation illness, vomiting and bleeding to death. And at the end of that book, everyone was dead. And that's where I lived. And that marked my soul. I understood right from the start when I was just an adolescent what nuclear war means. And it hasn't changed. It's just gone work, gotten worse, and we're actually on the brink of annihilation right now. There's absolutely no doubt about it. Then I did medicine, and as I said, I trained in cystic fibrosis. In 1971, the French were testing bombs in the South Pacific, and I got a message from someone that the water supply in Adelaide, where I lived, was radioactive. We were getting fallout from the French tests. So I wrote a letter to the local paper and I said that children could get leukemia from the fallout and that radiation like strontium-90, et cetera, concentrate in cow's milk and the like. And I just read Jermaine Greer, the female eunuch, so I was very uninhibited. And I rang the editor because he didn't publish it and I said, where's my letter? And he said, well, madam, we get hundreds a day in a very condescending way. And I said, yeah, but this one's important. I talked him through it. He published it the next day. And then I was that night on television, national television, talking as a doctor about the medical effects of fallout. And every time the French blew up another bomb, there I was on television and radio. And what I didn't know was that the Australians don't like the French. They think, they think they're arrogant. I've got a French son-in-law, so I'll verify that. He's a count, actually. I'm very fond of him, but he is arrogant. And there were spontaneous marches in the city streets, thousands of people with babies on shoulders and signs saying, I don't want to die of leukemia from French tests. 80% of the population were opposed. There were whole pages of letters to the editor. We'd never seen anything like it. Postal workers wouldn't deliver French mail. People stopped buying French wine, French cheese. And at the end of that, I was asked to go to Tahiti with the man who then became the Deputy Prime Minister, Jim Cairns, to, to talk to the French. Well, we got to the airport in Sydney and the French wouldn't allow us to embark because they said, you can't disembark in Tahiti. So next minute I was on a plane 
flying to Paris with the deputy prime minister, or who became so, then the leader of the Union of, of University Students. We got to Paris, we had to wait several days, and then we got to the Elysee Palace. We met with the French senior people and they said, well, our bombs are perfectly safe. So Jim Ken said, well, if they're perfectly safe, why don't you blow them up in the Mediterranean? Their faces turned bright white, and they said, Mon Dieu, there are too many people living around the Mediterranean. And so for the first time in my life, I found myself sitting opposite wicked politicians who didn't give one good damn if Australian children died of leukemia. And that was a big turning point in my life. Anyway, the pressure in Australia was so great that the Prime Minister took France to the International Court of Justice and she was forced to test underground. Out of sight is out of mind, of course. The Tahitian people suffered terribly with cancers and the like. They were flying patients into Paris in the middle of the night so no one could see them, but the fallout stopped. So I saw what Jefferson said, an informed democracy will behave in a responsible fashion. So that was good. I was at the time when that court ruling occurred, working 80 hours a week as a paediatric intern because I had to become qualified to become what they call a physician in Australia. In other words, to be a paediatrician. And I got a call at five o'clock in the morning in my room at the hospital from the Australian Broadcasting Commission telling me what had happened. And I said, well, that's good. But they were absolutely tickled pink. So that was good. Then I found out Australia wanted to mine uranium and I knew nothing about it. So I went to the library at the university and I got out a book called Poison Power by Goffman and Tamplin. These two were employed by the Atomic Energy Commission to work out if radiation was dangerous from nuclear power and the like. And it was a, a very scary book. I nearly developed alopecia totalis, which is total baldness as my hair fell out on the desk. So I learned about all the isotopes made in nuclear power, how darn dangerous they were. John Goffman, who was an MD and helped to discover plutonium, <laughs> he became my hero. And I went to see the prime minister in parliament. He wasn't a bit interested. And I had a friend who was an engine driver and he said, Helen, let's write to all the unions in Australia. Let's okay. write to all the unions. And at that time, most of our workforce was unionised, unlike America. You know, there were 76 unions in the state of South Australia. So we wrote to them and said, can I talk to you about the medical effects of mining uranium? They said, yeah, you can come, but we won't change. You know, we, we will keep on mining uranium. Anyway, I travelled all over Australia talking to union workers at six o'clock in the morning in the Northern Territory before they went out had a dirty old blackboard and a piece of chalk and dirt floor, etc., and drawing genes and testicles and how radiation induces genetic mutation. And I got around and talked to many, many union workers and miners. I went to the Mary Kathleen mine in Queensland, which was a uranium mine. And the workers said that they would tar and feather me if I went there. Well, I gave a talk. And afterwards, they lined up in queues to ask me questions. They bought me drinks. After I left, they set up a health clinic and the like and the like. And then I talked to the National Union of Railway Workers in Sydney, a couple of hoary old blokes. 
And I thought, oh, I won't convince them. The next day, they called a 24-hour strike across Australia, a national strike, and no one could get to work on the railway. I then talked to the Trades and Labour Council in Adelaide, the compilation of all the unions. I had, I don't know, 10 minutes. They talked. They'd been drinking. They were very rude. And I thought, how am I going to get their attention? So I started talking about the medical effects of radiation upon their testicles. Well, that shut them up. And I had about five minutes to fill it all in. And at the end, they said, oh, my God, I don't want my kids growing up in a world like that. So they passed a resolution to send to the Prime Minister. And so what happened, I then left for America to work at Harvard for a sabbatical. But the Australian Council of Trade Unions, ACTU, very powerful body, then passed a resolution to cancel and to block mining of uranium, transport and export of uranium, which was absolutely wonderful. Then we got a a Prime Minister called Bob Hawke, who used to go to the CIA and talk to them in the American embassy in Canberra, and he told the Americans he'd, he'd reverse that policy, which he did, and he brought in the three mine policy. We'll only have three uranium mines, which is like telling a patient, well, don't marry, worry, madam, you're just a tiny bit pregnant. He was a traitor. I was very, very annoyed with him. He's dead now. So that's my Australian experience. You moved with your family from Australia to the United States in 1966. How much did the exposure to radiation factor in on your decision to move? None at all, because the French had stopped testing. No, none at all. What brought you to the United States and what was your work here? My husband, ex-husband, was a radiologist and he got a job at Harvard Medical School in Children's Hospital Medical Center to work and train with Ed Newhouser, who was the most prominent pediatric radiologist in the world. We moved over there for Bill to train. I had three little children. I actually brought three children under three. He came to America for six months while I stayed at home and had my last baby by myself, staying with my dying mother. She was dying of rheumatoid lung disease. I got them all together and brought three children under three plus my mother to Boston so that he could go six months earlier to train. It was the most difficult thing I ever did. I was so tired. Anyway, when I got there, you know, I got bored and I said to Bill, can you get me a job at the Children's Hospital? And he met Harry Schwachman, who was one of the pioneers in cystic fibrosis, And I got a part-time job in the cystic fibrosis clinic. So I would get up early, bath my three babies, give them breakfast, take them to Mrs. Weisberg's, who was my babysitter, and get to Harvard by 8.30 in the morning to work. And I learned how to treat cystic fibrosis. In the interim, I was asked by some people, next door neighbours, I lived in West Newton in Massachusetts, to talk about the nuclear power and the medical effects. They were aware of your reputation and the history of what you've done. I can't remember how. I can't remember how. I think what I did was I wrote a letter to the Boston Globe about nuclear power. And I was interviewed by the Boston Globe. And I think I was put on the front page of the Boston Globe magazine. I was asked to speak. And at this meeting at my neighbor's place, 
I talked about everything I knew about nuclear power. And there was a man called Name Siskin there who was a publisher. And he asked me to write a book. And I said, I don't want to write a book. I'm too busy anyway. And he said, look, you can talk into a tape recorder. So I said, okay. But that didn't work. I had to sit down and write. And I wrote Nuclear Madness. And it was published. And it was published just as Three Mile Island was happening. And so... It sold an awful lot of books and uh, I became well known. And, and about that time, I, I started Physicians for Social Responsibility in Boston. You actually were instrumental, not only as being the roots of my activism, but the roots of my awareness of exactly how bad Three Mile Island was when I was one mile away from it, even for a short period of time, because when the world seemed to either try to be ignoring or just not speaking about the consequences to a human being. I came across an article. I was actually handed it by a publisher of mine, an article by you that had appeared in LA Weekly, where you were quoted as talking about what the consequences were from Three Mile Island, which was the first time I became aware of what I was up against. And it seemed that at that time, you were everywhere. You were the person the media turned to. How did that happen? How did they find you? Was this primarily because of the book? I think so. And I'd been interviewed by the Boston Globe. I can't remember how it actually happened. I think because of the book, also because of publicity, I was on various television stations and the book was out. And then Three Mile Island happened. And then I was asked down to. Harrisburg to speak to an auditorium full of very, very frightened people. And 60 Minutes filmed that. So I was on television, national television, talking about the medical consequences. And I had a fair bit of publicity after that relating to Three Mile Island, teaching people what it meant, the medical consequences. And you were perhaps the only one who was out there and speaking of it, let alone having that large and substantial a platform to speak from. Scared the bejesus out of me, but at the same time told me areas where I had to take care of my health and planted the seeds for what became my activism. And I'm certain I'm not the only one who had both a fear response and then a what can I do about it response. Yeah. Well, that's good. Everyone should know. And that's what I've done. I've been practicing global preventive medicine all my life, teaching people like it's, you're all my patients and I, you have to understand what the medical implications are of this technology and everything else related to your body. And this is particularly an area that does not get discussed or is not taken seriously. Well, because the nuclear industry is so powerful and they started up peaceful nuclear power, the Pentagon said at the time that it was to divert people's fear and attention about nuclear weapons if it was peaceful. And it's not peaceful at all. And nuclear power plants create massive amounts of radioactive waste, which must be isolated from the ecosphere for one million years, according to the EPA, and that's a physical impossibility. Nuclear power plants emit tritium continuously. Children who live within five miles, I think, of a nuclear power plant have double the incidence of leukemia. 
and that's three studies from Britain, France, and Germany. They're very horrendous carcinogenic units, and they say it's clean. It's the most dangerous technology ever invented, ever, ever, and will lead to the future of epidemics of cancer, leukemia, genetic disease, and congenital deformities for the rest of time as this hundreds of thousands of tonnes of radioactive waste leak and infiltrate into underground water systems, bioconcentrate in food chains, in milk and cows, etc. And it's not just us that develop congenital abnormalities and genetic deformities and cancer, it's plants and animals too. So we're producing random compulsory genetic engineering for the rest of time with nuclear power. So they say it's clean. The reason they are so powerful is that, you know, E equals MC squared, that's very powerful. And in the military, the men talk about having nuclear war like one big orgasmic wump. They talk about missile rectors, soft laydowns, deep penetrations. So it's a sort of powerful testosterone simile, E equals MC squared. And of course, almost all politicians are scientifically and medically illiterate. And these people who own the bomb and we're right on the verge of nuclear annihilation today, the red carpet's laid down in Congress and they get whatever they, to use an Australian expression, whatever they bloody well want. And I'll get onto the quotes defense industry soon, but it's not defense, it's murder. It's the Department of Murder, not defense. Murder. All these weapons they're creating, they're for murder. Murder. Why don't we talk about, use proper English? Defence. Absolute rubbish. Absolute rubbish. With your concentration on nuclear matters, especially in the wake of your book and Three Mile Island, yet at the same time, you are a physician, a pediatrician, and specializing in dealing with cystic fibrosis. How did you balance the time between the two, and when did nuclear begin to predominate? I did both together, really. I mean, I was working 80 hours a week at the hospital training to be a pediatrician, And the most calls that the hospital telephone switchboard got were about French tests and me. They threatened to fire me, the the, uh, administration, but they didn't. So I was doing both. I would see my patients, run up to my room, take off my white coat, have a television interview, run back and see my patients again. So I was doing both at the same time. (laughs) And then ready with a cap ready to get the film and fly it over to Sydney and play it on national television. I did both at the same time. Besides the hospital talking about but not following through on firing you, what other kinds of pushback did you get as you became progressively more visible? Well, you know, the hospital superintendent got me to meet with a man. I suppose he was a physicist. I didn't know. It was was, when I was talking about uranium mining. And he called me a Luddite. I'd never heard of a Luddite. I didn't know what a Luddite was. And through the retrospectoscope, how dare he say that to me? But they were on my back right from the start because they knew I was getting through to people. I think they knew that what I was saying was true and they didn't want people to hear the truth. 
While you were working in Boston, you became involved with what at that time was a small local group of Boston doctors who were... Yeah, there was a group in Boston that started in the early 60s against nuclear weapons called Physicians for Social Responsibility. And they produced two wonderful articles in the New England Journal of Medicine about a bomb dropping on Boston and the medical effects. And it was very powerful, but they fought amongst each other and died. The organisation died. Now, what happened was a young man called Ira Helfand, who was doctor in the local Cambridge City Hospital came to me to see me when I was working at Harvard because there was a referendum to be held in Harvard about cancelling anything to do with nuclear power and isotopes and he wanted some help and so I turned to him as we talked and I said Ira this is a medical issue let's start a medical organization well the week after there was a meeting in my house and there was a guy called Dr. Richard Feinblum who'd previously been a secretary for Physicians for Social Responsibility in the early 60s. And he said, look, it's still registered in the state of Massachusetts. It's dead. It hasn't operated for a long time. But let's see if we can use it. Then we don't have to go through the formalities. And we could use it. And so we called ourselves PSR, Physicians for Social Responsibility, We brought in some of the old people who originally formulated it and they turned out to be very difficult. They didn't like me because I was a woman. And in the end, they they got rid of me, actually, but after a long time. So successful were we that I took in an ad for the New England Journal of Medicine about the dangers of nuclear power, which I put together myself. And it was published the day after Three Mile Island melted. Serendipity. So... We got hundreds and hundreds of new members. We were operating out of a sort of a broom cupboard in Harvard Square in one of the doctor's medical practices. And we grew exponentially. And I was on television all the time because of Three Mile Island. That's actually how it happened through the New England Journal of Medicine and the like. In the end, we had 23,000 physicians who belonged. We had 123 chapters. I travelled all over the country servicing the chapters, teaching them how to talk on television, how to write op-ed pieces and the like. We held symposia on the medical consequences of nuclear war at Harvard, Stanford, I mean, all over the country, in all the major cities, and they were packed. And we got a huge amount of publicity from them, and people started to understand what the Cold War means, and it became very powerful. And at one of the symposia, I spoke and a woman came up to me afterwards and she said, I'm an agent for Hollywood film stars. I'd like to work with you. I said, I can't afford you. She said, I'll do it for free. Sally Field, Lily Tomlin, Tom Cruise, all of these people were her clients. So no one wants a boring old medical doctor talking about nuclear war on television. But if they've got Sally Field along with me or whoever, then... That's great. And so she put me on with the film stars on television and radio, in Vogue, in Life, in women's magazines all over the country. And so as I was on television, I was speaking to Mr. and Mrs. Joe Sixpack, sitting with their kids watching television. So through that mechanism, over 80% of Americans 
started to understand what nuclear war means. And then a film was made called The Day After, which it was a bomb dropping on Midwestern town. Everyone watched it. People had psychologists ready to counsel children because it was so scary. It was a film that helped to turn Ronald Reagan around. I was asked to speak in the Playboy Mansion before all the film stars in Hollywood. Paul Newman was there to speak with me. I'd never met him. I walked into the Playboy Mansion and he kissed my hand <laughs> and I nearly collapsed to this figure. is so beautiful. Anyway, my agent said, look, these are film stars. You can be emotional tonight. Normally when I gave a speech to like 2,000 people, I'd have to be extremely scientific and establish my credentials and only at the end could I go for their emotions and talk about how much do they love their children and smell a rose and the like but this time I was quite emotional I said at the end go out and look up at the stars tonight and realize that we're probably the only life in the universe well apparently Chris Christopherson had collapsed in my arms weeping at the end of my talk I can't remember that but also this tall skinny girl came up to me and said I'm Patty Davis I think you're the only person on earth who can convince my father about nuclear weapons and she was Reagan's daughter. Will you see him? I did a quick double take and I said, I'll see him, but alone without me, Baker or Diva. And so she rang me the next day and said, we've got an hour at the end of his working day. And I said, what time is that? She said, four o'clock, <laughs> which alarmed me a little. We had lunch, swept into the southern portico, went into the Lancelot Library in which there was no, were no books. He came in all dithery, didn't know where to sit. I sh shook his hand and said, how do you do, Mr. President? So I showed him where to sit and we talked for an hour and a quarter. Paddy sat there, but I was alone with him. I had longer time with him alone than any other person during his presidency. He started off by, oh, I said, I suppose you, uh, you don't know who I am. And he said, yes, you're an Australian. You read on the beach and you're scared of nuclear war. And I said, yes. And he said, I too am scared of nuclear war, but a way to prevent it is to build more nuclear weapons. So we were off to a flying start. I'd just written my book, Missile Envy, and I had figures and facts just pouring out of me. And so he'd get quite uptight when he'd make a, a remark and I would correct him. So I ended up holding his hand, developing a doctor-patient relationship with him for about half the time, just reassuring him teaching him. At the end, I thought, well, I, you know, I haven't had any influence at all. But after that, he started saying nuclear war must never be fought and can never be won. I think it was partly the result of the film the day after, partly the result of me. He mentioned me as, as, in his autobiography. And Nancy Reagan was on to it too. And in the end, he and Gorbachev met in Reykjavik for in, in Iceland and over a weekend, two mere mortals almost agreed to abolish nuclear weapons. But they got stuck up on Star Wars. And Gorbachev should have said to Reagan, you know, yeah, have Star Wars, because he knew it wouldn't work. But they got stuck on Star Wars and the whole thing fell apart. I remember Secretary of Defence Schultz came out from the meeting and he said we did this and we achieved that and we achieved this and then his face fell and then he said it didn't work. I later went to Reykjavik and the people 
took me to that little house. It was a little house and they cleared the area for about a mile around and there were men standing with guns all around to protect it. Reagan and Gorbachev met in one room, Schultz and Shevard Nazi in the other room. Upstairs was Richard Pearl, the Prince of Darkness who worked in the Pentagon. And so Reagan would run into Schultz and give him talk about what had been proposed. Schultz would run up to Richard Pearl in the bathroom who's writing numbers on lavatory paper because he didn't have any paper. <laughs> and then they'd come down and downstairs were the KGB and I don't know, I suppose they were drinking vodka and someone threw a lighted match into the rubbish tin and it caught fire and they nearly burnt the whole place down. <laughs> I, I've got that story straight from the horse's mouth. Amazing, eh? Amazing. Anyway, all our work to that point, and, you know, the international physicians for the prevention of nuclear war, I started medical organisations in almost every country in Europe, in Japan, in New Zealand, all over the world, and someone brought them all together. I didn't think of that, but a guy called Bernard Lown did. And he lobbied for the Nobel Prize. At the same time, Linus Pauling had nominated me for the Nobel Prize. He said, don't lobby them. They don't like to be lobbied. Well, Lown lobbied, used my work that I'd done, marginalised me and got the prize to hung around his neck. We are all Nobel laureates, in fact, and I'm the one who did most of the work, but I was ostracised. I didn't even go to the Nobel ceremony. So that's what happens to women sometimes. We do the work and we don't get the acknowledgement. Yeah, he stole my work. In fact, he's just died and I wrote to him just before he died and I said, you stole my work. Anyway, he didn't reply, but that, that pisses me off. Dr. Helen Kalnicott. There is much more to share from our extended interview, and part two will be presented next week. I will have links up to her website, HelenCaldicott.com, on this week's website page under Nuclear Hot Seat number 568. And make certain to check out her many books on all aspects of nuclear weapons, reactors, and the medical impact of the entire nuclear fuel chain. Activists, activists, the Nuclear Ban Treaty Collaborative is looking for a short-term campaign manager to start immediately and work for eight weeks on a mini-campaign to educate people about the current nuclear threat and elevate the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. This person can be located anywhere in the United States, and you can read the position announcement at a link we will have up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode number 568. Their website is nuclearbantreaty.org. Amnesia Atomica New York City includes a series of public programs and events designed to spotlight the work of activists, scientists, and organizations involved in nonproliferation and disarmament. Between May 17 and 24, Amnesia Atomica NYC will bring artist Pedro Reyes's inflatable mushroom cloud sculpture, Zero Nukes, to Times Square. If you have a chance, go there 
hey, take a selfie with it and send it to us at Nuclear Hot Seat so we can put it on the website. In film news, the four-part Netflix series on Three Mile Island is now available for viewing, but it will only be up for four weeks total. Here, with her usual sharp observations, is Linda Pence Gunter with this week's Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story. The Three Mile Island nuclear power plant disaster happened more than 43 years ago. Almost immediately, an alternative narrative that downplayed what really happened and what the near-term as well as long-lasting consequences would be saturated the media. The Three Mile Island accident was foreshadowed less than two weeks earlier by the fictional feature film The China Syndrome, which eerily warned that a reactor meltdown could render an area the size of the state of Pennsylvania permanently uninhabitable, the very state in which Three Mile Island is located. But the false narrative quickly put out after the very real nuclear accident in Pennsylvania and still reinforced today was that nothing serious really happened at Three Mile Island. Not much radiation got out and in any case, no one died. Pushing back against this propaganda has been an uphill battle for years for those who really knew and who lived through it, until now. The gripping new Netflix documentary series with a slightly unoriginal but nevertheless accurate title of Meltdown pulls back the veil on the lies and the cover-ups. It features contemporary interviews with local women, mothers whose eyes were opened as they began to doubt the lies. As the series progresses, a hero emerges in the person of Rick Parks, a thoroughly courageous industry whistleblower who, inevitably, loses pretty much everything. And there's even a slimy villain in former Nuclear Regulatory Commission senior executive Lake Barrett, who airily dismisses as mere emotion and hysteria all the overwhelming evidence of a cover-up that risked millions of lives. Some of you may remember it was that same Lake Barrett who was brought in by TEPCO to assess the post-Fukushima disaster there, which he also dismissed as of no major concern. Meltdown is a documentary that feels like a drama, both riveting and revelatory. Much like the HBO drama series Chernobyl, Meltdown succeeds in explaining precisely what went wrong, both from a technical and human error perspective, without boring the viewer in any way, quite the reverse. It's worth binge watching all four episodes in one sitting. Indeed, it's almost impossible not to. And I'll offer no spoilers here, except to say that if you can make an episode about a polar crane feel like a cross between Michael Crichton and Hitchcock, that's an achievement that will hopefully earn this brilliant series some plaudits. Documentaries about an event more than four decades ago don't usually qualify as news, but more than a reactor core is uncovered in Meltdown. Do try to watch this. I'm Linda Pence-Gunter with Beyond Nuclear, reporting for Nuclear Hot Seat. And that's this week's hot story. Thank you, Linda. And now, a big oops on my part. On last week's Nuclear Hot Seat, I interviewed filmmaker Jeff Daniels, whose film Television Event is being screened in Rio as part of the International Uranium Film Festival. What I was not aware of at that time is that the film will not be available online through the festival because it already has a distribution deal that prohibits it. Further, the filmmaker misspoke when he stated that the film his film was based upon the day after, is available in full on YouTube. It's not. 
YouTube took it down for copyright infringement. You can only see excerpts from the day after. So I apologize if I got your hopes up. And clearly, what this points to is my need for a vacation. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, April 19, 2022. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, beyondnuclear.org, nears.org, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANW.org, Dr. Paul Dorfman on Twitter, WSJ.com, that's the Wall Street Journal with its paywall, Nuclear Ban Treaty Cooperative, Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, USNews.com, News4Jax.com, WickedLocal.com, NewYorkTimes.com, Asahi.com, Kahoku.news, Gigi.com, English.Hani.co.kr, RFI.fr, TheBulletin.org, Counterpunch.org, and the captured and compromised by the very industry they're supposed to be regulating, Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Now, if you'd like to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email every week, right to your inbox, it is easy. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, look for the yellow box, and sign up with your first name and email address. We don't share it. We don't sell it. We just send you the information every week so you've got it. You can also sign up on your favorite podcasting platform. Now, you guys are on the front lines and I need your help. So if you've got a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. Email is really the best way to get the information to me so it doesn't get lost and it doesn't get delayed. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear information and issues around the world, take a moment, go to our brand new website, nuclearhotseat.com, and look for that modest-sized red button. Anything you can do will help, and we really appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2022, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. That means that you cite the program, the website, if you're citing a guest, you include their name, and proper attribution. This is Libby Halevi, producer host of Nuclear Hot Seat, reminding you, the unleashed power of the atom has changed everything save our modes of thinking, and thus we drift towards unparalleled catastrophe. Albert Einstein There you go. You have just had your weekly nuclear wake-up call, so do not go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.